If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Rachel Silveda and Dr. Nicole Jordan-Lopez. Rachel is an ASHA licensed and credentialed SLP currently working at a level one trauma hospital in Miami, specializing in swallowing disorders with diverse training in dysphagia management associated with respiratory compromised artificial airways, medically complex neurogenic populations, as well as the NICU specialty. She strives to be a lifelong student by receiving three ASHA ACE awards and supporting the SLP community by providing clinical mentorship to students as well as providing support for several teams on medical SLP platforms to promote continued growth for SLPs. Rachel has made patient advocacy and improving overall patient quality of life a personal mission and goal. She spearheaded a robust multidisciplinary tracheostomy team in her facility with a mission of providing exceptional care to the population by utilizing standardized protocols to streamline care. In addition, Rachel has curated multiple avenues for education for SLPs, including a badge buddy series, and an open collaborative called Trach Talks for promoting tracheostomy evidence-based research in an accessible manner. And Dr. Nicole Jordan-Lopez is a Surgical Critical Care Fellow at HCA Florida Kendall Hospital, an active member of the Trach team. She will complete her training in June 2024, after which she intends to continue working closely with tracheostomized patient population as a trauma surgeon and intensivist. And Rachel and Dr. Nicole did this, um, they did a presentation for the MedSLP Collective Summit uh, that was held a few months back and it was recorded. So if you'd still like to check that out, you can go to MedSLPCollective.com uh, forward slash summit. And they were part of our dynamic duo series. Uh, and it was a wonderful talk. And thank you both for doing that presentation. And just here is a little sneak peek of the presentation with this episode today. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. 
This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. By now, I'm sure you've heard of PatCom Medical, but who is PatCom exactly? They're a medical equipment provider specializing in dysphagia, voice disorders, and esophageal access devices. PatCom was founded to provide clinicians and practitioners with the latest technology at competitive pricing, all while keeping patient comfort at the center of all they do. They have a selection of equipment for fees, video stroboscopy, and esophageal access, as well as solutions for disinfection and dysphagia education. Follow them on Instagram at patcom underscore medical to stay up to date with all they have to offer. That's P-A-T-C-O-M underscore medical, patcommedical.com. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Welcome, Rachel and Nicole. Hello. Glad to be. <laughs> Good evening. Thank you for joining me. We're happy to be here. We're excited. Yeah. excited. All right. So tell the people a little bit about yourself, Rachel, and then have you go first, Rachel, and then Nicole. Sounds good. Um, my name is Rachel Civeda. Um, I am a tracheostomy passion lover, all things about tracheostomy. I'm practicing currently at a level one trauma hospital and um, my heart and soul is poured into this population and just um, improving care from start to finish and advocating for the population to make sure they receive the best quality of care, not only from us, but our interdisciplinary professionals and as well as our speech language pathologist role. I really preach to the choir and hope that we all can get on our, um, on our soapbox and, and, um, promote for this population. Awesome. And Nicole? I am, well, my full name is Nicole Jordan Lopez. I come from Puerto Rico and I'm a surgical critical care fellow, um, also at a level one trauma hospital. For those that don't really know what a fellow is, that means I'm currently training to be a surgeon, but also to be a critical care intensivist. So I really work closely with this population from when we place the trace to all the aftercare. And while working together with Rachel, I really learned to love them and see trachs as a really a stepping stone and a good thing for a lot of these patients. Awesome. All right. So Rachel, talk a little bit about, you know, how you guys work together and sort of the impetus behind this podcast. Yeah. So I've known Nicole for many years at this point, but little did we know how much we were going to work together and how closely we were going to work together. Um, but every time I had a trick, I would like run and talk to Nicole about it. But basically um, we kind of formulated a tracheostomy team in our facility, which we'll talk about later, but this kind of um, stemmed from us kind of brainstorming and talking about how we noticed like a lot of patients were falling to the cracks. Um, they weren't receiving the most optimal care. We were noticing like we weren't getting consulted or um, we were noticing that there was misconceptions about the actual tracheostomy care in, and I mean, polar opposite misconceptions, like can't eat on a ventilator, can't speak on a ventilator to, well, yeah, we can do all of those things. So when we kind of uh, merge those two trains of thoughts from a speech perspective and a surgeon perspective, our worlds collided. And I kind of feel like that's how we got together and how we could formulate all these advocacy plans for this population, but also really hope to promote it to other SLPs and other medical professors, professionals, not only 
surgeons, doctors, intensivists, but, you know, nursing, respiratory therapists, PTs, OTs, so they could really understand holistically about tracheostomies and how we can improve the continuum of care from start to finish. Awesome. Yeah, so I started working with Rachel about probably five years ago when I was like what we call a baby intern. So <laughs> I was getting exposed to more tracheostomy patients. And the care was very different at that point at my hospital because it was mostly driven just by the trauma surgeons. Uh, there were maybe only two SLPs in the hospital and Rachel was the one doing, you know, kind of running everything. And it was a lot of like, do we feel that the patient is okay to do this. So it wasn't uh, evidence-based. And I was very sad because most of the patients just seemed to like sit around with tracheostomies forever. And then when I started working more closely with Rachel and we started it, we developed the tracheostomy team and started implementing protocols, you, you just saw the difference. And it was really like a growth point for me too. Like now I personally take this wherever I go and the importance of working together with um, SLPs to just do more than just put a tracheostomy in and let the patient sit, but actually work with them in the rehab process. All right. So this actually, this came about because we just had our MedSLP Summit, the MedSLP Collective uh, Live Summit, and Rachel and Nicole presented together. We did our dynamic duos, which is just conversations with interdisciplinary colleagues and how we can work so well together. So they did an, an amazing talk um, that's still available if you'd like to check it out. Um, but I just wanted to bring them on here because I think this is something that we should have sort of just a bigger, you know, overarching conversation about. So so let's, I want to talk a little bit about sort of your roles and, and how they're similar, but also how they're polar opposite. So Nicole, you want to go first? So I can start. So to start off, um, the surgeon's role can really be diverse depending where you work. Uh, some places have ENTs, place tracheostomy. Some places have general surgeons. Percutaneous tracheostomies can even be placed by intensivists or anesthesiologists. But as a critical care surgeon or a trauma surgeon, you are seeing the patients from before they get a tracheostomy through the tracheostomy process. And then you're also trying to, you know, optimize them to, you know, be able to leave the hospital eventually. So I think a lot of times we focus, um, you know, just on the medical aspect of it and why the patients are sick, why the patients are on the vent, you know, do the tracheostomy as a bridge to maybe get them off the vent faster, maybe get them dispositioned, you know, going to LPAC or, rehab, SNF, et cetera. And unless you work together with an SLP, I think the focus is not really on rehab, but putting a focus on rehab while the patients are in the acute care setting, I think can really make a difference. So I think that's where our roles kind of start deferring and we can collaborate good together. Rachel? Okay. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. I think that's, I think it's really great because we, we kind of just have this misconception going in where I mean, before I met Nicole, when I was working there, maybe like a year in, I was, we didn't talk to the doctors or the surgeons. It was like speech went in, did their job, wrote their note and done, done, done. I think that like interdisciplinary communication is very evolving and it's coming more into practice now. Like we should always be communicating with our peers, but I don't think it was like the norm. It wasn't, it was also kind of like, and Nicole, you probably could speak to this, like, we didn't associate like, oh, we can't, we can't tell them our opinion because, you know, they write our orders and that's it. So I kind of, my personality, I'm like, well, I'm going to talk to everyone. So basically did my evals. And then I'm like, well, let me go like poke in here and talk to the resident or talk to the doctor. I will say talking to the attendings is a little bit harder, 
but talking to the residents and saying like, okay, so what do you think the speech's role is in tracheostomy management? And they're like, oh, you evaluate them for a communication board or you evaluate them when they're ready to eat. Okay, well, when do you think that that's appropriate or when can we do it? It was just kind of this like give and take. So kind of providing education that we play a central role in the screening, the assessment, the diagnosis of patients with swallowing and communication disorders, right? But the key there was with or without ventilator dependence. So just because they're on a ventilator doesn't mean that we can't see them right now and we have to wait, kind of providing that insight and evidence-based practice that we can start the day they're trached, the day they're on the ventilator and start providing education to the family, to nursing. Maybe they're not ready, but we can start from day one. Um, and then kind of providing other skills, like we can do MBSs, we can do fees or instrumental evaluations. We can do assistive augmentative communication like AAC. So yes, a communication board with like, you know, yes and no's, or we can do a letter board or a high tech communication device. Uh, we can assess for secretions, readiness for downsizing, capping and decannulation. So once they start knowing the vast skills that we can provide, that's when our worlds merge. And then Every trick we had, Nicole and I would be like, all right, so what's the plan? Like we would, we would connect. And that's where we were like, now it's, we're coming full circle. Like I'm doing my part. She's doing her part and we're meeting in the middle. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to interject and say that it was a completely different shift in culture from when I started. I think we were mostly consulting patients after they were even decannulated. It's like, why are you going to like bring swallow on board to evaluate? Like they have a trach. Like obviously they, they can't. Because there are things that obviously uh, just defer of where everyone trained and in an academic program, the attending isn't necessarily micromanaging those details of rehabilitation. Um, so if a resident hasn't been exposed to seeing that a tracheostomy patient can eat, for example, they're not going to think about getting speech on board. They're going to not going to think about um talking about that so soon and definitely they're not going to think that they can talk on the ventilator so a big role was education and just working together on that did did you know a lot of this stuff before nicole or were you just really open-minded to rachel's approach no uh, like i said five years ago um, when i started i did not know this yeah i knew a little bit kind of (laughs) like took some bits and pieces that i learned from attendings but for example, inline passamir valve or like fees, all those things were new to me. And it's actually been really exciting because, you know, I, I feel like I've gained knowledge that is not um, accessible to everyone. Uh, luckily, by having this relationship with Rachel and I've like seen the fees and I can kind of like, you know, do a little bit of that. Yeah, it's always good. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating. Like I've, I've talked, you know, I've had a bunch of different doctors and surgeons on this podcast and I just always think it's so fascinating. Like depending on their exposure, right? You know, they're like, oh, I work so close with our SLPs. And I, I even, I just ended up at this dinner that there was two ENT or one was a critical care doctor, one was an ENT. And the ENT was like, oh my gosh, we work so closely with our SLPs. They do so many wonderful things. And the critical care doctor was like, wait, what? Like, what do they do in your ICU? And it was just so funny. Like the two different schools of thought just had no, you know, idea of what we could do to help, help support them. So yes. I I think ENTs get a lot more exposure to this because that's their specialty. This Mm -hmm. is what they work with. But if you're doing trauma or medical critical care, like pulmonology critical care, you may not be exposed to that unless you work at a place that has a tracheostomy team or have has SLPs that are really passionate about working with that type of population. 
Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. All right. I think it's interesting, like what you were saying, kind of going off of that point, Nicole, like you kind of learned from what your attendings told you. And I kind of found like the culture shift that we kind of created at our hospital was, I feel like you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it, like, or until it's like been presented to you, like they feel like they feel like, well, I know that. And then you start showing them stuff like, like, for example, like this bullet point timing of the assessment, you, for what you're attending passed down to you, or I don't know who, or maybe you guys learn it in medical school is okay. They can eat when they're off the vent. You don't talk about tracheostomies in medical school. Exactly. So it's, so like that collaboration from start to finish, like the education is so imperative because they may think they know everything and it's not a game about telling them that they're wrong. It's just like providing these like little pearls and insight and, and, and information and letting you come in the room and watch the fees or watching a post-op day one or 24 hour tracheostomy evaluation. And like Nicole and I and the family are in there providing our brochure and like doing a passing year for the first time. And they, and then you get to expose it and then you bring the residents in and they see it. And then that passes on to their teaching and then they go down five years down the line, then they become an attending and they pass it on. So I think that that collaboration from the beginning when the trach is placed all the way through is so important because each stepping stone plays a different role and you can bring that to your residents and your, when you're an attending and carry it on. Yeah. It's, it's very valuable. And just to get people interested in it, because sometimes it may not necessarily be that an attending doesn't know, but in the middle of all the things that they have to worry about and the patients that are crashing, et cetera, they may not be paying attention to those little things. And for anyone that works in an academic center, like you've mentioned, like it's really essential to make contact with the residents and the fellows because they're the ones that are doing the the other things that they're ones that are spending most of the day with the, with the patients and can really like make a difference in this sense. Yeah. Nicole, talk to me a little bit about, you know, did you have to sort of go back to your team, you know, like your team of, of attendings and surgeons and or other residents and just say, you know, these are some things I learned, you know, this is something that we should really explore. Talk to me a little bit about sort of how, how you had those conversations and what the reactions were from your colleagues. Yeah. So luckily um, when Rachel got involved with the, um, with her idea of starting a tracheostomy team, she did get many of like the attendings on board and my attendings, especially my program director was kind of like the surgeon leading the tracheostomy initiative along with her. So they were all on board. I think there may, maybe was a, a thought like, wow, this is a really ambitious thing. Like maybe they hadn't thought that this could be possible, but you know, <laughs> she put that exactly that it could be done. Um, but from that to trickle down is definitely something that has required like constant like reinforcing and education yeah. because the residents do change like very often. They continue to transition from one rotation to another. You get new interns and it has been something that consistently I have to, you know, go back and tell them like, you know, why we do what we do and no, like passing me your valve and a cap is not the same thing. No, we're not going to decannulate the patient as post up day three because they do get excited, but sometimes they may not understand everything that's really going on. But um, it's just been continuous learning and education. And I think that the ones that have already been seeing this for a few years really get, you know, accustomed to it and now like teach more of the junior residents about it. Awesome. Love that. Love that so much for you guys. Nicole, Nicole was really the catalyst. Like she was, I mean, being the fellow, like she's like, like it's not chief's not the right word, but you're like the fellow of like, uh, there's other ones underneath her, but 
like she's the key player. Like I'd have to go to her. And then of course we had the attendings above, but she was the catalyst. Like on days that I'm out, we'd be texting or like, what's happening with this Drake? Like she had to take that. And remember, I think there was like memos that you're like, Hey guys, remember console speech on day one or that constant, like it seems irritating, but like I told you, Teresa, persistence, like it's yeah, pleasant. Yeah. At, I mean, at this point they're getting, they're getting very good at it. Like sometimes I see them send the text messages, come on, tracheostomy order set, like plays, things like that. Like the consult is in like immediately after a tracheostomy has been done. So you see that now like their seniors are like paying attention to that. And as far as like also the attendees, uh, when you are the fellow, you are giving a lot of autonomy. Uh, so mostly it is like the fellow saying like, you know, I think it's time to get speech on board sometimes or it's well, not even to get speech on board because that's they want. But it's like maybe this patient's ready for decannulation or for downsizing. Let's talk to speech and whatever we decide together. That's like what's going to be done. Yeah, I love that. All right. Yeah, let's go into, yeah, sort of how, how you guys like do bridge the gaps between like video fluoroscopy fees. Yeah. Where do you want to go with that, Rachel? Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of spoke a little bit about this during the summer and I think it's like, again, key points that like the myths, right. Or like what, like the misconceptions, because it, unless there's a clear understanding of like the path and the plan of care, the doctor might want to do something different or like I had it today. Oh, the patient's not ready. Okay. Well, explain to me a little bit more like what is ready in your definition. And I'll tell you what ready is in my definition and let's meet somewhere in the middle. So like, I think a big gap that we noticed Nicole was, and we've mentioned it was waiting until the patient was off mechanical ventilation to do any kind of passimur or any kind of dysphagia evals. Um, and like, you know, literature shows that the passimur use on the mechanical ventilated patients restores that physiological peep can improve oxygenation. So like we kind of had to work together to try to get those PMVs placed earlier. Um, and like from your standpoint, Nicole, it was like not shocking, but it's kind of like, well, wait, we can do what when they're ventilated and when like it was kind of like startling right yes i think one of the you know big like most shocking thing initially to me was the inline passimere about that concept had not been introduced and i thought like oh yeah the patient can have you know maybe they're on oxygen but as long as they're not on the vent they can talk right it's like no no even on the vent i'm like wait and then um it was really essential to also like discuss like something i learned it's like okay so they can be on the vent as long as they have like X settings. And sometimes it would even be like, you know, if we have a patient who we are giving using a higher PEEP than would be indicated to use a PMV valve for like recruitment or something like that. But they're a patient that could handle, you know, a temporary decrease in PEEP, you know, for like say five, 10 minutes or something. Sometimes we would work on that together. I would and I would adjust the ventilator settings in a safe manner with the patient so that we could try a passimere valve. So it wouldn't be, you know, there are patients that speech can go in and, you know, do this with the RT and, you know, that's it. There are patients that even the RT maybe is not completely comfortable on doing that on their own. But if I felt that it was really important for that patient, then I could be there present. And, you know, if the physician's present, then it's different and we're willing to, maybe could say take a risk, but it's not really a risk. It's like the, if anything happens, we're here, we can handle it. We can, you know, adjust the vent as necessary. We can stop the procedure. Um, so I think that was like really important, like working with the vent 
with the goal of using the Passamere valve, I think that actually left to like more rapid weaning off the ventilator just because, you know, you're thinking about, I want to get this patient to talk. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that, Nicole. I think what's, what's so fascinating is, um, you know, I just started back working in acute care and, and in the ICU and it was, you know, it was interesting. I was talking to one of the, um, one of the PAs and she said something like, you know, well, we're just focused on getting the patient stable and getting them out of the ICU. And, and and you sort of, you know, it, it rung a bell when you said, you know, I don't really think much about their rehab stay, you know, mm-hmm. and, and to me, I said to her, you know, I was like, I totally get that. But like, if we could do a few things in the ICU to help set them up for even more success or even get them out of here faster. And she, it, she was just like, oh my gosh, yeah, like I never really thought of it that way. I just always look at it this way. And then as an SLP, we always look at it this way. So it was, it was a really great conversation. And I, like, I, I will probably remember that conversation for for my entire career because it was just no, like no hard feelings, no animosity. It was just like, she's going down one highway. I'm going down the other. Like we just didn't even think about like crossing paths. Like (laughs) very true. Uh, Sometimes like we, we had a little saying that was, you know, trach peg LTAC because there are many (laughs) patients, you know, we have no not anymore. That doesn't happen anymore. No, That's like the old culture. Yeah. Yeah. The old culture. Because when you had neuropatients that you know were going to take a very long time in recovery, you know, they would recover in LTAC. LTAC will do the rehab. But then when you get your SLPs working and rehab working on day one, you realize that these patients progress so much faster. They progress fast and there's no longer, you know, LTAC for many of them. Like a lot of them I can get you know, off the vent on PMB because obviously like insurance and everything that takes a few days. So in those few days we work with them and then, you know what, this patient can go to rehab. And that's really like a really amazing change. And one of the things like I I appreciate like the most. I love that. I remember there was like some days, like I'm just throwing this in here because of the trait bag I'll tech yeah. that like, maybe like, oh my God, the patient's leaving today at 3 p.m. And Nicole and I are like, all right, how much time do we have to cap them to do a fee? Yeah. Like we're like, how much can we get done? Because like, not that they won't get that in the other facility and I'm not putting, you know, any other types of settings down, but I think if they're in your setting, you need to do as much possible in that amount I of time. I not agree enough with you. Because you don't know what kind of therapist they're going to get. You don't know what kind of insurance situation. You don't know if like they're only going to be there for two days or God forbid something happens in the other setting and they don't make it like try to do as much as you physically can there. And like, maybe we're crazy. Maybe we're crazy for trying to squeeze a fees in two hours before transport. But if that patient can leave and have juice or coffee or a hamburger, we're going to do it because why not? Right. Like as long as it's stable. That that is my soapbox. I will stand on Rachel. Only because I've been on, I've been on the receiving end of that too, you know, and like, and, and I just had a, had an experience about a month ago that, you know, a doctor was like, this patient's discharging today. What can you get done before they leave? And I was like, yes, like I was so happy to have that support, but I've been on the other side. I've gotten some of these patients before that it's like, why didn't they just get this done? Or why did they even, you know, and we don't know the answers, you know, we don't know there could have been a million reasons why not but I'm a glass half full person. And I always want to believe like that there was a good reason for it, but sometimes we just truly don't know, you know? And I I think that's such a disconnect, I think between, you know, acute care SLPs and then the next level of care SLPs, because we so badly wish they came with something, even just like a note saying like, sorry, we didn't get to this or like that would have solved a lot of problems. Like a love note. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry, we didn't get 
to, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I, I truly do think we have a responsibility to set them up for success at the next level of care. Like not just that you said, get them out the door, like don't tire and go on and get them out the door. I think do what we can to get them to that next level. I think sometimes patients, you know, yeah, the intensivists are very busy and sometimes there are things that are like, okay, for example, a downsize of, of a trach. It depends who does it at the facility. Like, is it the resident? Is it the RT? Is it the SLP? If, you, if they're too busy and too overworked, they may not just didn't physically get to it, even though it was indicated in a patient. So I've had a, a few that suddenly they tell us like, okay, transportation is going to be arranged for this patient at like 2 p.m. And I'm like, wait, 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 let's change, let's downsize <laughs> them before they go. Or like, can we do an MBS before they go? And I had a very brief opportunity to like go for a week or so at an inpatient rehab in a different facility. And when I was there, I was like, wait, what do you mean? This patient has been tapped for 10 days. Why haven't we like decannulated them yet? So after seeing that, um, because, you know, they didn't have like maybe the same resources and they were a little more careful because now they're not in an ICU. They don't have around the clock supervision. Um, after seeing that, I'm like, we need to get as much done as possible in the hospital because, you know, afterwards, they, you don't know how long they're going to be in rehab or what resources they'll have. That was always the hardest part for me was I, I worked in skilled nursing for quite a long time. And we'd get these patients and it would take us sometimes five, six weeks to even get them sent back to the hospital for video fluoroscopy. And I think, you know, a lot of times acute care SLPs don't understand that. It's like, oh, just have them come back at outpatient. And it's like, no, like that is so hard. Like, it's so difficult to do. And, you know, there's a million, it, like it was almost like an act of Congress to get somebody sent back to the hospital for video fluoroscopy, whether it was like the facility approved it, we got transportation, the family was okay with the family being transported back. Like there was a million ways that it could go sideways before it actually happened. So it was, I was always just so grateful. Like the hospitals that I did have really good relationships with, you know, like I said, Rachel, some would call and just be like, I'm so sorry you're getting this patient. I didn't have time to like, you know, do anything or they, you know, or I would call and just say, Hey, did you, you know, what, what happened with this patient? And they couldn't give me an explanation. So I think it's just so important to for SLPs to even have those relationships between facilities too. Cause like, I mean, everybody's busy. You're not going to get to everybody. There's going to be those ones that things happen, but it's, it's, it's nice to know, you know, what we could have done if we could have done anything. So. Yeah. And even like the collaboration, like you're saying is like, I hope that other SLPs that listen to this or even, even a doctor, if we can share this with everyone is that like, we can use each other as resources. Like you said, if it couldn't get done in that setting, Give us a call. Like, I, like, let's be open about it. Like, hey, they're post-op day 10. They're like so close to being downsized or cap. Like that way we can spread the message. Like maybe it wasn't in the note, but now you're hearing it like verbatim, like, like phone interaction. Like let's get that ball continuously rolling rather, rather than the care stop. Um, and then take another week to pick back up. Like we should be able to pick up right where we left off and there should be no like delay in care. And that's what Nicole and I were like striving for in our ICU was, like there shouldn't be a delay in care because delaying care directly correlates to poor quality of life. Like that patient, like we had one guy that we put a PMB on and he's like, I can hear my voice now. Like, and you could just see the frustration. Like it was only post-op day, like two, I forgot what it was, but he was anxious. And if we can give him that ability to just say, Oh, can I have water or express his frustration? Let him have that because that's a delay in care and that is reduced quality of life for that patient's experience. Yeah. At that moment, the nurses were saying that he was very agitated. And we were like, what the, what the, what the, yeah. I think he just needs a voice. He's actually, you know, just trying to communicate. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was like post-op day two and he was full of secretions too, but that man was anxious. He wanted to talk. Yeah. That's a whole, that's a whole other podcast episode. Why is yeah. just <laughs> yeah. well, because they can't eat, they can't speak. What else? Yeah. yeah. Oh goodness. Oh. oh, you guys, I love this. We could talk all day about this. Maybe do you want to talk about like what would be like the ideal course in the setup? Like if you get consulted, like yeah. what you're going to do. Yeah. I mean, I think that we kind of created like a really good like plan and like we kind of, we did like PowerPoints education to show like the team, like this would be the projected course. Every patient's different, but you know, um, we had a very good communication. Like we knew who was going to get tricked. I'd be like, this guy, cause I would join rounds. So I think that anyone listening to this, if they can join some sort of rounds, whether it be like your trauma rounds or the neuro rounds or like just a team, right. And they can kind of give you a heads up if someone's preparing to get tricked, like that's a prolonged intubation. They're probably going to get tricked. Keep them on your radar, like write their name down, write their room number down. If you can't formulate some sort of like list serve or like a running list in your hospital, at least you're preparing to know which trachs are coming. And then once they're trached, um, strive for getting that consult. We stroke, we stroke, strived. Is there, an, is there a verb for that stroke? We strive to get a consult post-op day one. And that was our goal. And we hit it like 99% of the time with the outliers. So then there's no reason for that patient to fall through the cracks because once they fall through the cracks, you're talking about days before you get them. And that's days of lost time, days of lost chances to put them on a diet, days of lost chances to get them verbalizing, which therefore is frustration for the patient and the team. So once you get that consult post up day one, um, Nicole, you could chime in. However, I think our communication of like, what's their, their hemodynamic stability, right? Like, cause you know, you're not just diving in. And they're bleeding and secretions are everywhere. So I think that conversation with Nicole and then what would like, what do you recommend that questions to be asked to you, Nicole? Are there specific questions that we should be asking you? So regarding post-op day one consult, if you're going to try to get this implemented somehow in your facility, I recommend you talk to whoever is placing the traits. And even if you can get it post-op day zero, that's perfect. Because I think post-op orders, you know, if you place them post-op, it's like when the orthopedic surgeon um, does a hip and they put PTOT orders. They have to replace that day. If they would wait until the next day, suddenly someone forgets. So post-op orders yeah. for speech consult, right when the patient gets a trait. And then, I mean, speech can come and say, okay, the patient's you know still not ready or they, they know they'll come the next day. Things to ask, obviously it's, you know, what are we doing with this patient in general aspects? Obviously, are they in any drips, hemodynamic instability, like she mentioned, ventilator settings. Obviously, you guys can go to bedside, but if it's not possible for you to round in all the patients, maybe you can just communicate with the with the surgeon or the fellow, whoever is taking care of these patients to talk about like, okay, so what vent settings are each of these patients in? Because that's going to give you an idea. And if they're on these like high vent settings, you can't do anything with, it's like, is there a prolonged course? Why um, are we just still treating ARDS so that you can kind of have an idea if this patient is going to, you know, need to get back on your radar and you're going to be able to do something with them soon or not. Um, if they're, I, I feel I'm, I'm biased because I work with trauma. So a lot of them are just TBIs, but if they're TBIs and they're getting trade because they could not extubate because they were either too drowsy or too agitated, in my mind, these are like the perfect patients because usually after they get trade, you know, all those strips start coming off. And then in a few days, they might 
it's just like changed completely. I have so many of these patients that, you know, just the, the residents and everyone's like, oh my God, they're doing so well now because TDIs just need time. You know, they, what they need is time that's going to tell you how they're doing. And even if they don't do much and they can't talk, we'll talk about later that there are other things that you can still do. But the point is that these patients usually have ventilator settings that, you know, are very adequate, can be weaned off rapidly. You know, as long as they're breeding, they get to pressure support and then to TPs or trait collar. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough, like talking about the progression, like that post-op day zero or one working with the trauma population, I think that that we have a very aggressive mindset. I mean, we're we're conservative when we need to be, but I mean, we're not comparing this to like a degenerative multiple sclerosis patient or an ALS patient. Like this is different. These are patients that we have the opportunity, like Nicole said, to like really um, optimize their care and optimize their care quite quickly compared to other populations. So depending on where you work and what population is your prime target, if it's head and neck, or, you know, you know, chronic pulmonary conditions, you might need to approach things a little bit differently. I still would say fighting for that post-op day zero or one consult is like a no-brainer because once you lose them, you lose them. And then like, think about working in a 1500 bed facility or a 300 bed facility. You know, it's going to be hard to relocate that patient or keep them on your radar. So just by having them, you know, right there and ready, keep note of it, have a running list of your traits. But then kind of progressing forward, like Nicole said, maybe they're not ready that exact day, but we can do other things. Family's always sitting at bedside and they have a million questions for you. When can they eat? When can they talk? What is this tube in their neck now? Why is it not in their throat? So that component of education, we kind of saddled back on that and we're like, let's talk about education and help the family. That way they're not asking every person that walks in the room the same question 15 times. Um, let's look at secretion management. Let's analyze the tracheostomy and see if we have a patent airway, right? If we can get clearance from the team, can we do a cuff deflation trial? Maybe we're not placing that passing mirror valve today, right now, five hours later, but maybe they're allowing us to try a deep uh, cuff deflation trial or examine the secretions. Maybe the patient's tracking. Maybe we can localize to sound. Maybe we can do a glaucoma sale reference. So a lot of things that you could do in those first 24 to 48 hours. And then kind of moving into like you're rounding with the patient or you're monitoring them, you're on day three, four, five, six, you're starting to get speech really involved. We're coming in with our passing mirror. We're doing our inline. Maybe you're doing ice chip trials. Maybe you're doing a preliminary fees, right? Some facilities like to have a pre, a pre fees, see like what's going on with the secretions, maybe before they even give PO. Uh, we found that very useful in our ICU when we're like a couple days in and they're like, why does this patient still have so much secretions? Let's look at it. Let's look in. Let's see how they're managing the secretions. Are they having, um, are they sensate? Like, are they able to cough and elicit? Like, yeah, maybe we're suctioning them, but we're eliciting that cough. Can we look at from above with our fees and cue a cough or give them an ice chip and see if they have a response? So all this stuff was so imperative to creating a plan of care for the patient versus them just saying, yeah, speech is on the case. They came by today. Like, no, I'm, I'm going to tell you everything we did with that patient. Nicole, around, like five, around day five to seven, we're talking about like our downsizings or actually seven to 10. Yes. In our um, practice, usually seven to 10 is when we'll consider any tube exchange because there should be, you know, a well-formed track. There are places that they do it slightly earlier or if, depending on comfort and how the patient's doing, managing their secretions, et cetera, it might be later. But at day seven to 10, something very simple that we just like 
try to establish is like days seven to 10 is when sutures come out. So if we keep close track of when day seven to 10 is, then from the speech standpoint, you can ask like, is the patient ready for a downsize? And yet why or why not? Um, I use like, again, when I, uh, when I started as an intern, there was a lot of, uh, oh, but the patient isn't ready because they have too many secretions. And eventually it's like, okay, but the tube can also cause secretions. The tracheostomy tube is irritating their trachea and can contribute to more secretions. So something that we can do, for example, from my standpoint as an MD, like as the intensivist, I could actually do a bronch. So some of the patients I would do a bronchoscopy and see, and if the secretions are not in their lungs, like if this patient does not have pneumonia, it's not mucus plugging distally, then I could say like, oh, well, I'm attributing the increased secretions to the size of the tracheostomy. So maybe it is time for downsize. And we've seen, okay, let's downsize now. And then the secretions approve. So that's like something to always um, take into consideration. And it's like from both sides, what can we do for that? Also, depending on the culture, um, not everybody is on board with doing uncuffed or fenestrated. Like it, in my hospital, it just doesn't happen. But at least we get them from an eight to a six. Uh, so it's always something. Yeah. I work at now at a place that I work now is they want to go like, and there's very structured uh, protocols. And I think we kind of created something a little looser, but also, um, you know, mm-hmm. talking to the chiefs is like one person really likes standardized and one person like a little mm-hmm. bit more like patient to patient. So we're like, let's meet in the middle. Um, so some places will go like eight cuffed and then they go six and the six cuffed and they go cuff lists. Then some even go like to the extent of a four and they go cuff lists and they cap it. It's like, there's just a lot of steps or you could go somewhere in the middle and do like a couple steps. Um, but we created a really good balance. So then we did the downsizing around that day 10. We did a capping, which was anywhere from like a 24 to 48 capping, 48 hour capping protocol. If they look good in 24 hours, that cap was off and we decannulated. If there was anything that kind of occurred, we had a communication. Hey, RT removed the cap because of X, Y, and Z, a desaturation or an adverse event. Okay. So let's give the patient a break, a 12 hour or 24 hour break. And then we recapped. Um, and nine out of 10 times that worked. So. It's just constant collaboration. And I mean, you never want to seem annoying. And I like to tell a lot of the SLPs by calling them, you should never feel annoying. You should never feel like you are asking too much because you are the patient's voice. You're advocating for the patient and the doctor will be advocating for the patient as well, calling you. So if I have to call seven times in one day to talk about a downsize or a PMB order or a diet order, it's because I'm advocating for that patient who can't speak for themselves. So everything that we did with this tracheostomy team and all this education was stemming from needing to help the patient and improving the patient's care. It wasn't for us. It was all for them. <laughs> I have to interject on what you were saying about calling. I started telling Rachel that the real difference that we saw is because we started seeing um, SLPs as consultants. So we have the pulmonologists, we have the nephrologists, we have like all the other, you know, physicians going up there and they do this because this is also how they get business. They go and they see us when we're done with rounds and they sit and they talk to us in one sitting about all the patients that they're seeing for us. So one, we know they're available. Two, we know what the plans are and we don't have to call them. Three, they don't have to like, you know, be answering our texts about it. So when the SLPs would come at X time in the day, hopefully like early, and we would just talk about all the patients that they were seeing and what the plans were, 
that saves us the trouble of having to call them to ask about everything. And it really helps us feel like we're collaborating. And I think it increases like the chances that they're going to, you know, value your opinion and get you on board sooner because they see the value of everything that you're bringing to the table. Yeah. Sorry, Teresa, I told you we could just keep talking. I know. Well, and I could, I could listen to you both because I just, I love this so much. And this is just, I just want this for so many, so many facilities. Like I just think of, you know, how badly we would love to collaborate with so many critical care doctors and yeah. So awesome. We need, so we need so a bunch of Nicole's for... running around. That's what I we know. <laughs> we just clone you, Nicole, and pop you in every trauma <laughs> center that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, this has been so good. Um, yeah, any anything else you guys want to cover? I mean, this has just been so so good. I want to talk briefly, um, just because it connects to what Rachel said about the fees. And Rachel, maybe I, I want you to also talk about the paper that I told you guys. Yeah, yeah. Because you're the one that shared it with me. And I think it really shaped <laughs> a lot of what we did in our in our yeah. ICU. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing uh this guy's last name correctly, Warnicky. <laughs> But he wrote a paper uh, called Standardized Endoscopic Swallowing Evaluation for Tracheostomy Decannulation in Critically Ill Neurologic Patients. It was published in 2013, and Rachel shared it with me recently because she started to she wanted to start this also in our ICU. And we didn't get to make it into a protocol, but we were kind of doing it anyway. It, yeah, we were like right there. We were yeah. already doing it. <laughs> it was an observational study in a neuro ICU, so it you know really connected with us that a lot of our patients were um, TBIs, trauma TBIs, and it was a hundred consecutive tracheostomized patients. And basically they did what I felt we were doing like a long time ago, which is that they compared how many patients get decannulated based on just clinical judgment. Interesting part is that this was, you know, both were SLPs, the people doing this so that, you know, it could be a fair comparison, but regardless at the hospital, people were getting decannulated due to physician clinical judgment, just like, hmm, does this patient look yeah, good enough to extubate? Are they coughing? I think I think they'll do fine. And when you have a patient that is completely at work and alert and oriented and he is speaking, well, that's that's great. That's easy. Um, if he's tolerating the capping trial for, for 48 hours, even that's easy. But sometimes with the TBIs, you have patients that are just like uh, GCS 11. Well, 11 T would be different, but, you know, just not there. It's like they kind of look at you, but they don't talk that much. And for some reason or another, the cap always gets discontinued. Yeah. And you're suspicious whether it was a good reason to get discontinued or not because it happened at 3 a.m. and there's no documentation. Well, they compare that clinical judgment with a standardized fees evaluation. And they saw that a lot more patients. How many more patients? I think it was, yeah, 54 patients got decannulated based on the fees protocol versus 29 patients based on clinical judgment. And the fees protocol that they used was basically, you know, the same thing that we were doing when we were doing fees on our patients. Um, so they would see if they had secretions and would abort if there was massive pulling. And then we would move on to see how many spontaneous swallows. If less than one per minute, you know, they would abort. The laryngeal sensibility or cough. And then they would test for puree consistency and fluids. And based on all of these, they would decannulate. So we actually had patients that were not passing the clinical judgment, um, you know, trial 
where we were like, okay, let's do a fees and see. And we were surprised to see that those uh, traumatic brain injury patients were actually clearing their secretion spawn like perfectly. And they were deemed adequate candidates for decannulation. We were able to decannulate them. And for me, that was just like mind blowing, game changing. Yay. I love that. Yeah. This is where like, this is where like the connection, like, I mean, we had the connection before, but this is where like, we're like, oh, major things are happening now. Cause it's like, we're, I'm taking the speech world and we're like, kind of like, importing it into Nicole's brain now. So like the way she just described the protocol is like, she's a speech language pathologist. But um, I mean, really like Nicole and I will go in the room and like, we've had countless TBIs where like in rounds, everyone's like based on their GCS and based on the secretions reported by RT or the capping was unsuccessful. Oh, they're not a candidate. And it's like, we would stop. We're like, well, wait a minute. Like, let's just take an extra five minutes and talk about this and see like, like this is a patient's like outcome on the line. Like this is going to affect his disposition, where he's going to go. Is he just going to go to an LTAC and just kind of this um root, what's the word? Like kind of a continuous cycle going on of like, he's not ready. He's not ready. Like that word drives me not like what is not ready. So let's just get in there, go with the camera. Like doctors can scope and bronc and look internally to determine things. Like, so can we with this awesome tool. So that's what we looked at and we use this protocol, um, like quite a bit and it worked pretty well. I have to give credit to Eric Blecker because he's the one that shared it with me, um, my mentor, but he, but this is an amazing, an amazing protocol that we, we really would love yeah. to formulate more officially. But I think that one, when I brainstormed that, that really worked out well. I love that. I think, and well, I mean, that's obviously my huge passion for fees is just like what you, you know, it's almost like you're just spinning your wheels. There's a whole team of people that are just, giving opposing opinions and clinical judgment. And we think this, and they think that, and we think this, and then it's like, let's just stick a camera in their nose and take a look. And then it, it always just like blows up the entire conversation because it's way different than what half the people thought, but the other half the people were right, you know? And it's just, I've just, I've always been such a big advocate for fees because I've just seen it just cut to the chase, right? Like, Obviously, we need clinical judgment to order these tests and things like that. But I feel like sometimes we spend a little too much time yeah. just in the mud, just spinning our wheels. And we could just get the, you know, get a camera in there and really see what's truly going on. So I'm just, I'm so happy that you're an advocate for that too, Nicole. Because yeah. I think, like I said, those of us that that know about it and know how much, you know, it really can tell us, it's just maddening when people don't want it or don't use the tool that's available to them. No, it's an amazing tool. And, and Rachel actually brought it to our hospital. So I have to like thank her so much for that because it not only gives us all these objective information to help make medical decisions, but it just has changed a lot because you can bring it to the bedside. I have a lot of uh, critically ill patients that cannot make it to the radiology suite. And, you know, it would be so difficult to just like, get them through an MBS, but this is very objective and we can, you know, know more from it. Yeah. So that was Nicole's article. My article, if you want to know my game changing article, um, it's actually a fairly new one. Um, it's Davis at all, but it's speech pathology services are integral, but underutilized in tracheostomy rehabilitation. And it's 2021 and it's written by, uh, it's, it's in the cranial maxill facial trauma and reconstruction journal. But what I found so interesting about this while we were doing like lit reviews for our own literature is that um, this article's their goal was for every patient to have like a general SLP evaluation on tracheostomy patients, which is what Nicole and I were striving for in our hospital. And they showed that the evidence suggested that many tracheostomy patients could benefit from that early evaluation from SLPs, right? 
they were noting that without these skilled services in your facility, whether you're getting a really delayed consult or maybe not speech seeing them at all, that it was incurring like an increased length of stay, an increased length of time to decannulation and overall cost for the facility. So having a system in place to recognize when speech was needed, when to consult them, maybe like have a tracheostomy team or track patient progress showed improvement in the functional outcomes. So this is a great paper to kind of present to your team or other fellow SLPs or even doctors like, hey, this is what we can do. This is how we can help. Um, we can help rehabilitate your population of your patients and diagnose and treat and manage. Um, just get us on board, right? We're, we're here for you, but we're underutilized. So that was a game changer article for me. And it's helping shape our literature that we're writing so that we can help promote and get on our soapbox more and advocate for this population and our role within the population. Mic drop. <laughs> That's it. I got nothing else. You guys. <laughs> I love um, no, this is, this is awesome. Thank you so, so much. I, I, I just love what both of you are doing. Rachel, you know, I'm like your biggest fan and I just love everything you do for our field and just really, you know, getting in there and making change at, you know, at the hospital level, which is all we can, any of us, you know, that our SLPs want to do is just make change, affect change in our own facilities and you know, so grateful to you, Nicole, for, for being on board with all of Rachel's oh, crazy ideas. They've been wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> They're the craziest people to make the changes in the world, right? You have to be crazy enough to think that you can change the world. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's it. Awesome. Any final thoughts, you guys? Again, I'm, I'm so grateful for, for the talk you did for the summit, obviously for coming on here and hopefully you inspire so many other dynamic duos to team up and, and see what change they can affect in their facilities too. So. These are Nicole's words. These are Nicole's takeaways. She says, go with knowledge without fear and in the best interest of a patient. That's what she says. Like, be dynamic. I love it. So that's Nicole. Awesome. I love that, Nicole. Thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> no, I was always so much. I think um, as long as, you know, we have a common goal and we have a common passion. So that hopefully is going to lead to a lot more exciting initiatives uh, coming forward. Awesome. I love that. Thank you so much, you guys. Appreciate you. Appreciate you too. Yay. Thank you. And that's our wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.